Hey everyone, it's James Lindsay, and it is time to get in trouble here on the New Discourses podcast. We like to get in trouble, right? And today we're going to get in trouble. So fairly recently, we put out a very long podcast about queer Gnosticism. And in the middle of it, I talked a little bit about feminism. I talked, actually, I use the the feminist, the very famous feminist from the 1940s and 50s, Simone de Beauvoir, as the stepping off point to talk about queer theory. And I mentioned a little bit about, I said I would get in trouble there, and I mentioned a little bit about how feminist theory, or critical feminist theory at least, is also Gnostic. It's feminist Gnosticism. It's not different. As a matter of fact, it's a very correct thing to say that Simone de Beauvoir opened the gate to the path to the hellscape we live in with the trans phenomenon. So we look at feminists, and this is a big question people have, we look at feminists fighting against the trans rights activists, or women plus, kind of in general, and we see them unable to do much. They are the most informed people fighting against it, probably. They're the most vocal. They may actually correctly have the most skin in the game, except perhaps parents, uh, although some of them are a fair proportion of them are parents as well. They have a lot of skin in this game. They have the theory, the theory. They have the activist fire, and yet they're useless, completely useless. And they don't like hearing this. So, so we're already in trouble. We're two minutes in, we're already in trouble because the feminists can't stop queer Gnosticism. They can't stop queer theory. And the reason is because queer theory is the, not exactly logical, but hermetic extension of their brand of feminism, which will be very careful. It's not all feminism, not all feminists. It's radical feminism, where the radical refers to pulling out by the roots, or it's liberatory feminism, where this, where, where feminism is seeking liberation. And so I've given this argument before. I'll summarize it again quickly. What the feminists did wrong following Simone de Beauvoir is that they started to, and actually it was kind of before hers too as well, but they started to really harp in on this concept that gender is a social construct. Sex for feminists is not a social construct. Sex is an embodied reality. It is what your body does. You are a woman. I am a man. This isn't negotiable. This is a fact of biological reality. However, there's all these things like roles that people are supposed to take on due to their sex. And this, these sex roles and sex categorizations and what's expected to come with them start to go into this socially constructed realm called gender. And gender, which is complicated because in its modern use, doesn't really come from a feminist at all. It comes from a creepy pervert called John Money who was affiliated with SICUS, S-I-E-C-U-S, that's the, if I can remember, Sexual Information and Education Commission of the United States, which apparently is kind of a communist front organization. The modern use of gender comes from there. But the idea was to divorce the idea of socially scripted roles that apply to the sexes, or what is now referred to as gender, or gender roles, from biological sex. You can be any kind of woman that you want. You're still a woman, but it doesn't matter. There are no womanly things that are correct to being a woman. So gender is a social construct. And the, the gender 
constructivist idea, especially once criticality or critical gender constructivism gets put into the picture, it's like a train and it's rolling down the track and there's the place at the end of the track. I don't know if you've ever ridden a subway, but it goes all the way down, then it comes back and it goes all the way down and it comes back. There's a last station. In this case, there's not actually a last station. There's just a cliff to fall off of. But the point is, if you try to stop at any station along the way and say, we're there, you're not there yet. And so when you accept the social construction of gender, when you accept critical constructivism with regard to gender, you've put yourself on the slippery slope. And that slope will eventually ask, where does gender come from? Well, gender has something to do with sex and has something to do with sexuality. And the next thing you know, you're in queer theory. And if you say, no, no, sex is not socially constructed. It is biological. It is part of reality. The social constructivist will turn around and remind you of your postmodern philosophy's views of science and power, that it's in fact socially constructed too by the same people who want to keep the sex binary. And so, unfortunately, you're just being a conservative. You want to preserve something about women and men and something about the binary intrinsically, and you're appealing to masculine science to do it. Unfortunately, you have no defense if you're a gender-critical feminist to this accusation, except to try to assert that no, biology gets to begin to be real here, but nowhere before here. All of the things like that women might have what often get called gender characteristics, but it, it should actually probably be called tertiary sex characteristics, psychological sex characteristics, that they on average are more nurturing, that they tend to prefer working with people rather than things. These kinds of features that correlate statistically extremely strongly with women, that women are supportive and receptive and this kind of stuff, more social, men are more goal-directed and blah, 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 this whole thing. These are probably not arbitrary social constructions. In fact, they're definitely not arbitrary social constructions. They're too common, too stable across cultures, too stable across history, too kind of obviously hardwired. These are better thought of as tertiary sex characteristics. So if you say, well, no, 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 tertiary sex characteristics, these have nothing to do with biology. These are socially constructed. Then when you get to the next step and say, no, secondary sex characteristics are also socially constructed, by the way, you have no defense. And maybe even primary sex characteristics are mostly socially constructed or have a lot to do with it. You have no defense. Your defense is that you're asserting politics. You're saying that the social constructivist thesis stops here, which the other side, the left side, your left, says you're just being conservative to uphold part of the status quo. You are actually not a progressive. You have vested interests. You are trying to maintain your privilege. Blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, cisgender privilege comes into the, in, into the chat. And you have no defense against it because you've accepted that biology is up for grabs up to a certain point. And they're saying, no, it's up for grabs to another point. So you say, we're going to stop in the train or the subway analogy. We're going to stop at this station. And they're saying, no, you have to go another station. The train's not done. And you don't have an argument to say why your station's the last station because you've accepted the constructivist thesis. Now, 
I've already made the case a couple of times that I think the social in the modern and postmodern eras, so you can listen to my long ass podcast about Gnosticism in the modern West, which I talk about, and I did a short podcast, Gnosticism, modern and postmodern as a so-called new discourses bullet, or you could listen to the queer Gnosticism, which is super long, and you could hear kind of the arguments here about how the social constructivism thesis is in fact Gnosticism in the modern and postmodern eras. I am quite confident that it is Gnosticism in these eras. I really have to summarize Gnosticism again, but I want to point out before I kind of dive into the argument that I want to make today that this understanding that feminism or gender-critical feminism is in fact feminist Gnosticism makes sense of so many seemingly mysterious and angry feminist positions that people struggle with. For example, people think that feminists hate men. You hear this all the time. Oh, they just hate men. They just hate men. They just hate men. And they do kind of have that uh, Nietzschean ressentiment, that curdled envy, that's, that, 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 that covetousness that's gone bad and turned angry. They do have that. They do have that deep-seated like resentment plus against men. But this, there, there's a reason why. And, and when you understand that this is feminist Gnosticism, you'll understand why. See, people think that feminists hate men, but that's not right. And they'll tell you that's not right. We don't hate men. We don't hate men. We hate patriarchy. We hate this. We hate misogyny. We hate that. People think feminists hate men, but that's not right. Feminists believe society is constructed and controlled by men, and they hate society. So, in the modern and postmodern eras, the spirit of society becomes demiurgic, and it becomes the demiurge. It becomes the, the, the creator, the evil creator that constrains and imprisons its poor victims so that it can maintain its own status and privilege as a, as a god or a demigod. And so they hate the fact that society is contoured by people they believe have access to demiurgic power that they are excluded from themselves. And I know that that if you're not, if you haven't been following along with my arguments about Gnosticism, you might not know what I'm talking about yet, but we're going to make it clear as we go in a minute. Feminists believe society is controlled by men and they hate society. The social constructions, that's Gnosticism in the modern and postmodern era, they believe that it's the spirit of society that contours everybody's life. It socializes into people and, and is structurally deterministic upon how they have to live their lives. And it inscribes upon their minds, their souls, really, how they're supposed to be, that they're supposed to live as a woman in a particular way, that they're supposed to live as a man in a particular way. You have to be manly. You have to be feminine. You have to be womanly. You have to you blah, 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 the whole thing. And that this is a social construct. And this goes back to Kant, and it goes back to Hegel, and it goes back through Marx, and it channels into the feminists very strongly through Simone de Beauvoir, who, whom I've mentioned. It goes queer through Michel Foucault, the postmodernist, and it goes fully queer with the ways that Judith Butler and others took that up, and we covered that in the previous podcast. But the fact of the matter is that the society itself, they believe, is constructed in terms of power, and that power is designed to benefit a small group of people who consider themselves elect in that system, 
and to oppress everybody else to keep them out of the power structure. Feminists believe that society is controlled by men. They call it the patriarchy. It is enforced by a thing called misogyny that the patriarchy wields as a weapon to keep women excluded, marginalized, oppressed, and so on. But they don't hate men. They resent the fact that men get to be demiurgic, that they get to play the role of the demiurge through the patriarchy, that they get to visit punishment upon women and justify that punishment, just like God does when he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden for Eve's folly and Adam's sin. Um, and then he brings terrible childbirth and pain and all this suffering, blah, 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 upon women. They believe that society is controlled by men who granted themselves access, just like God in Genesis, who Gnostics believed, Christian Gnostics believed, was the Demiurge, and Jewish Gnostics believed was the Demiurge, and that there's a true God that we are a fundamental part of, inseparable from, behind the facade, they think that society is controlled by men who granted themselves the power to exclude women in the same way that the God in Genesis threw Adam and Eve out of the garden for being other to himself and daring to elevate themselves to the level of him. That's the idea. So they hate the society that's conditioning people, and they resent the fact that men get to control the society. And that's the basis for Gnostic feminism. So it makes sense of why feminists seem to hate men other than just appealing to ressentiment. The ressentiment comes from somewhere. The ressentiment comes from a orientation, a literally theological or no-theological, I really should say, because it's Gnostic, orientation toward the way society is constructed. It makes sense of why feminists think the way they do about rape culture. It makes sense of why feminists think the way they do about abortion, about motherhood. It makes sense of why feminists think the way they do about virtually every possible thing you can imagine. Every hot feminist political topic is comprehensible more clearly, understanding that critical feminism is Gnostic, that is feminist Gnosticism, than any other way. And so now that I'm sure that I've pissed these people off, let's talk about it and kind of make the argument and then fill in some of the gaps on those those kind of political points. The wage gap, the whole thing. Okay, so Gnosticism, very brief, I hope, summary, ancient spiritualist. I, I don't want to really call it a religion. It's the basis for spiritualist cults. It is religious, but it's not because religions depend on faith and faith is actually rooted, in fact, in doubt. Believe it or not, faith is rooted in doubt. Faith, if we read the book of Hebrews, for example, is confidence in what's not seen, confidence in what has been promised, but is not visible. And so faith is the thing that fills where doubt is. But there is no faith without doubt. That's absolutely necessary because you don't need faith when there's certainty. Gnosis is certainty. Gnosis is self-knowledge. Gnosis is knowing. You've seen a glimpse of the mind of the divine or the mind of your, the, 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 your aspect of the mind of the divine. Your mind and the divine mind actually aren't different. They're just like a piece of it 
trapped with an immortal body, and you have seen your true self. In other words, you've seen yourself through the mind of God, which is how you're really meant to see yourself. And thus you see that the material world is an illusion. It's a deceptive, misleading material reality that's evil and fallen and false. There's a, there's a, there's a creation story for this. Um, in short, God is perfect and good, so God can't be evil, but the world itself is evil because it's separate from God. It's other to God. And since that's the case, God can't have made the world because God is good. So God couldn't make the world. So God, through a series of what works out to mythological accidents, ends up creating through the, the divine feminine in the concept of Sophia or wisdom, creates the character called the Demiurge, the artisan who actually creates the world. And so in some sense, it's like the grandson or son, depending on how we want to lay out the mythology of God, creates the world. But it turns out that was not okay. That was an act of, uh, Sophia doesn't have the power to create and isn't granted that. And so it was actually wisdom that had become folly that led to this creation. And so the creation of the world was an act of sin and therefore the creation of the world was evil. And the creator of the world is in fact an evil demon who creates the world as a prison for man. And there's reasons why man is involved in it this way. And we don't have to get into all that. And so, Gnosis on the first level becomes realizing that your existence is this. That's your first certainty of knowledge. You've seen, oh, I'm not different from the divine at all. I'm just trapped in this stupid body. I'm just trapped in this stupid world. And this world was created, in fact, maybe by an evil creature because it's different than God. It keeps me away from God. It, I'm loaded with desires and temptations and all these things to sin. So it must be evil and fallen and keep me away from God. But the part of me that is actually aware that I'm not separate from God can see through this. And now you have saving self-knowledge, salvific, if you will, self-knowledge. And that's the beginning of Gnosis. And so you see through the whole illusion. So this is kind of Gnosticism in the kind of specific religious sense that was a brand of mysticism, you know, predating Christ, following Christ, big Christian cults of it in the... Christian-ish, I should say. They're not Christian, actually. They're heresies in the first and second century. Um, so you have this, this belief structure that works that way. And so the key thing that was the demiurge has demiurgic power, which means artisanal power, which means workmanship power. In other words, he can build the world, but he builds the world being an evil demon as a prison for those who would be his equals if he wasn't keeping them oppressed. And all of a sudden you're seeing the whole architecture of woke because it's a whole, the whole thing is Gnostic. It's a, it's a Gnostic cult uh, revamped for the modern and postmodern era. And that has a lot to do with the work of these philosophers. There aren't philosophers that we hold up in the uh, mostly 17th and 18th and 19th century in Europe. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, Immanuel Kant, Frederick, uh, GWF, George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel. I always have to do the initials so I can remember what order they go in. Hegel, at any case, Karl Marx, absolute, definite, raging, satanic, not Gnostic, um, no question. And, and most of the rest of them in between and, and among them. Yeah, we don't have to list all the names. 
but those are kind of some of the big characters. And this channels through Beauvoir eventually, and we end up with very Gnostic feminism. Not to say that it wasn't already dipped in the Gnostic milieu before that, but certainly Beauvoir lays out a very Gnostic case. So what's the big picture? What do you have to take away to understand Gnosticism? There's an entity that has the power to incarcerate everything that would be its equal if it wasn't incarcerated. It incarcerates it in the material world and in the material body that are deceptive, that lead it away from the knowledge that it would have if it, say, ate from the fruit of the tree of good and evil, that it would know that it is a being like unto God, like unto the Demiurge himself. And so reality being itself is actually the product of a intentional and evil separation from God to keep people down by a entity that has the power to do so. And what I'm contending is in the modern and postmodern, well, the modern era, starting with people like Rousseau and Kant and um, Hegel in particular, and later Marx, what you have is actually these same mystical beliefs, these same Gnostic beliefs, and they're stepping away as the Enlightenment is unfolding around them in Europe, often against their interests and wishes. Rousseau was not a fan. Kant was not a fan. Hegel was not a fan. Marx was not a fan. But they were working their mystical beliefs into the context around themselves because either that's how they comprehended the world or because they felt like they had to, or because it just seemed to be clarifying. And what you particularly have is the idea that the spiritual realm isn't spiritual. It's not off in heaven or the pleroma or whatever it's called. It's not spiritual in the kind of silly classical religious sense. It's Spiritual in the sense of the spirit of society, with Rousseau laying out social contract theory. The social contract is this kind of binding agreement among all the members of society, even though they've never formally heard it, and they certainly never sat down to sign it. It's this sort of binding agreement among all the members of society to follow the rules of society, to be reasonable, to be rational, to be polite, to follow the laws. And there's this social contract that everybody has to agree to. And Rousseau said man is born free and everywhere he is in chains under the social contract. So his theory of society becomes to optimize what he believed was freedom under the social contract, or in other words, freedom under some kind of what we might call democratic centralism, which was what Lenin and Mao called it later. And so there's your leftism. But man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains is a Gnostic sentiment. And the society itself is producing, is the entity producing the chains. You are required to be polite and rational and not throw a fit and not be a lout and not be this kind of gross um, failure of a person that Rousseau was. Knocking people up, carting the babies off so that he didn't have to take any responsibility for them being dirty, not wanting to have to be reasonable and rational when he didn't have his argument, he just wanted to make his point and be right. All these kinds of kind of awful leftist characteristics coming out in Rousseau. He wasn't this high-minded, high nobleman. He was a mess. And so society is chaining him down. He can't be his whole self. He can't bring his whole self to work, which, by the way, is a leftist scam. 
It's a communist scam. Do not bring your whole self to work. Stop going to work and getting married in front of your students. If you're a uh, teacher, like has gone viral in Twitter recently, stop going to work and being a stripper in your classroom. If you're like one of these groomer types, stop with the drag queens at work, stop with the sassy attitude and claiming that it's a cultural feature, bring professionalism back. Professionalism is not a set of chains. You're doing a job. And, but you see within Marx, just to skip the story a little bit, Marx saw the employer as having demiurgic power over his employees, enslaving them in exchange for trading their abstract work potential, time, completely abstracted from what work is actually about, to pay them abstracted value, money, which doesn't have any meaning in and of itself. And so the whole thing is removed and abstract and fake and not real anymore. But the employer, the capitalist, has demiurgic power over the workers. It's the same story again and again, skipping some steps. So Rousseau, anyway, Kant separates the so-called noumenal world, the spiritual world, from the phenomenal world, which is the experienced world, the interpreted world of experience. And he, in fact, is very critical in religion, up to this point, what you have, and this is in books that he titled Critique of This or That, Pure Reason in particular, Critique of Pure Reason. In the religious world, you had the idea that God creates the bridge between the spiritual and the material, the spiritual and the real. Okay, so God becomes the bridge, and we can go into the theology and talk about how that works, and people can argue about different aspects of theology. But in the Enlightenment, we had this new idea coming around called the correspondence theory of truth. That which corresponds to the real world is true, and we can determine what corresponds to the real world through experiment and evidence and empiricism and the application of reason to what we discover— such that what we realize is that, well, if I can do the experiment and you can do the experiment and the other guy can do the experiment and somebody else can do the experiment and we keep getting the same result, if I can go look at the tree and you can go look at the tree and everybody else can go look at the tree and we can all agree that, wow, that little knob right there sticking off the side of the bark is a very curious little feature, then the knob and the tree are probably real. And we're actually probably describing features of the real world, because how in the world else would people without any other a priori knowledge come to complete agreement on what they're seeing unless they're actually studying a piece of reality? So that which corresponds to reality is true is kind of this bedrock of the Enlightenment. And then Kant's like, wait a minute, there's some essence to the tree in and of itself. The Ding an sich, as it is in German, the thing in itself a certain treeness, and we don't have access to that. All we have access is to our senses, which are phenomenal, not noumenal. Although now notice, he's redefined the noumenon. The noumenon is no longer a spiritual phenomenon at all, or a spiritual entity at all. It's not spiritual. It's the thing in itself. It's sort of, in a weird way, platonic. It's what makes that tree that tree. When you have this You'll never know what it's like to be a mouse or a dog. You can't get inside the dog's head. You can't experience as a dog. You can't experience as a mouse. There's something that there is to mouseness. You can't experience mouse consciousness. You don't know what the rock is in itself. You only know how you can measure it. You can only know the phenomenal aspects of it. You can't know it in itself. You can know the rock for itself, but you can't know the rock in itself. And this is his critique of pure reason. And so what he does is he says that, no, no, if the Enlightenment's unfolding and we're doing away with, with this divine that bridges the noumenal 
and the, as he's re now redefined the noumenal, the essence of the thing itself, the thing as God would have understood it when God created it is the theological part. If we're going to sever that from the phenomenal, from our senses, from our measurements, our understanding of it, well, if we're, I'm sorry, if we're going to have those, we're going to have to sever those because we're limited to our subjective understanding of it. Our measurements are things we do and interpret in our brains. We are locked entirely inside of our brains. So we can't know the thing in itself. In other words, we can't know the noumenal. We can't, as he called it, we can't know the spiritual. Well, what's happened here is by talking about the noumenal that way, he Kant shifted very much like Rousseau, and he was a big fan of Rousseau. He shifted the spiritual realm into something else. It's some kind of qualitative essence of what a thing is. And then he's arguing that we can't actually know that. So all we're left with is the ability to understand it the way we understand it in the phenomenal realm, which is agreed upon socially. If you go look at the knob on the tree and I look at the knob on the tree and my mom looks at the knob on the tree and your mom steps away from me and looks at the knob on the tree and we all look at the knob on the tree and we decide that this is what we see and we talk it over and say, yeah, I see that too. I see that too. I see that too. That was a social decision. And so Kant who famously had no decorations whatsoever. He was an odd man and had a portrait of Rousseau as the only decoration hanging in his office, his study. Kant, who was famous for his OCD, taking his highly regimented walk at the exact same time every day, so much so that it was a running joke that you could set your watch to Kant's walks, forgot to take his walk one day, great scandal, because he was nose down in a copy of Rousseau, big fan of Rousseau, is kind of facilitating this shift into the noumenal, or into the social noumenal, I should say. The idea that somehow it's socially agreed upon. There's, we can't actually know the thing in itself, but we can gain consensus about the thing in itself. But that's actually just in the realm of phenomena. Down the line a little bit, Kant considered one of Germany's greatest. We have philosophers, we now have Hegel, who holds up Kant not as Germany's greatest philosopher, but instead he holds up Jacob Burma as uh, greatest philosopher of Germany. Now that's B-O with an umlaut H-M-E, and I spell it because we all know I can't pronounce German things, so I'm probably saying it wrong. But at any rate, he wasn't a philosopher at all. He was a mystic. He was literally just a hermetic mystic. He was a wizard. He was not a philosopher. He was a spiritualist mystic. And that's who Hegel held up as Germany's greatest philosopher. And he takes these ideas of Kant, which are the authority, the ideas of Germany at the time, and he reflects them through Burma's uh, mysticism. And he comes up with this idea that that, that this, this social reality takes its shape within the spirit of the world. Society has its own spirit that's generated by the little spirits of all the people. It's little pieces of the big spirit, which is all of society. And so he writes this first book, published in 1807, called The Phenomenology of Spirit, where he's arguing that spirit, not just as a phenomenon, not just as in the world of the senses or the real or whatever, the social and the consensus, but it's evolving through history. And at the end of history, as he sees it, 
it will realize itself when everybody realizes that it's that that, that it is in fact spirit and we all agree upon what the spirit holds for us in the spirit in other words when the mind of god comes to know itself to be god through the mind of man it will know itself to be god and then there will be the completion and so the hermetic and gnostic beliefs of hegel get codified and they get written down in their first kind of real codified form in the phenomenology of spirit which describes the idea that the world spirit the the ghost of the world literally weltgeist the ghost of the world is evolving according to the way that humans are transforming the social constructions according to the idea and the state that's prevailing at the time. So the spirit of society is evolving. It becomes, as it evolves, the impetus to change the idea. The idea informs what the shape of the state will be. The state creates the conditions in which the culture and the society play out. In that aspect, the national or cultural or regional or entire world spirit and all of its pieces of conflict evolve and the conflicts are resolving through the clash of opposites and the whole dialectical hermetic thing blah 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 principle of polarity we've talked about these things in the past i'm not going to hash this out the point is what i'm saying is that the noumenal realm the spiritual realm the bridge between the phenomenon which is what we experience and see and measure and have through our senses the the bridge between the phenomenon and the spiritual realm as the modern era unfolds from Rousseau through Kant into Hegel at this point is being codified as so Hegel's rebuilding the bridge that Kant knocked down. That's what you got. So Kant said there is no clear bridge between the phenomenal and the noumenal. And then Hegel comes along and says, yes, there is. The phenomenon of spirit will complete the bridge and we will return to spirit and the spirit when we return to spirit will realize itself to be spirit and it will absolutize so the world spirit will become the absolute spirit and the absolute spirit will give birth to the absolute idea and the absolute idea will give birth to the absolute state and will live in utopia this is his dialectical process so now we have a bridge built and so what it turns out is that what hegel's codifying is that the social universe the social universe is where the spiritual actually lies so if we go back and put that in terms of social contract theory of Rousseau and we frame it in terms of what later gets called social constructivism, the social constructs of society, which are the Weltgeist, the pieces of the Weltgeist, the social constructs of society, those contingent facts of history and location, etc., that define a society, those social constructs are actually spiritual. They are, the, they are the spiritual realm in the modern era, which has now eschewed the pre-modern theological, spectral, whatever the right word is for the spiritual realm in the past. So in other words, through Rousseau, through Kant, to Hegel, you have a kind of three-piece construction that moves the spiritual realm into the social realm. The social sciences now become the theology of the modern era. You get rid of the pre-modern view of the spiritual, which is what we normally think of as transcendent or off somewhere else or supernatural in some way. And no, no, it's actually this manifestation of the social reality that we all find ourselves in. So when you hear the term social reality, what you're actually hearing or think what's actually being talked about when understood this way, is the spiritual realm moves into the realm of how society plays out. 
And that's the Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, Gnostic construction. So you now have a new way in the modern era to connect the spiritual noumenal realm, where things are as they really are in themselves, including the divine spark that's contained within them, especially in the human mind that's not actually separate from God, except in this world of appearances. And you have that moving from the spiritual realm with a mystical, magical, spiritual demiurge that constructs the world as the creator Yahweh and into, no, society constructs its own illusions. Society imprisons itself, and that's Rousseau. And how does it do it? Well, it does through the social constructions, the social contract that it subscribes to, and that's the trio. And so we have the old world through Kant, the old understanding, the pre-modern understanding of the connection between the noumenal and the phenomenal split, and then in Hegel, both of whom leaning on Rousseau's socialist construction, rebuilds the bridge where the social sciences become the theology. Okay, so I I promise you we're going to talk about feminism. We haven't even got close to feminism. This is modern and postmodern Gnosticism, though, because now whoever gets to decide the social constructions is the demiurge, some faction of society. Maybe it's a king, but probably it's not. It's probably a class of society, the societal elites, not the king, the elites themselves. And now you have the French Revolution, or maybe it's the capitalists, and now you have Marx's revolutions. They get to control the worker. So what you have to do is figure out who is in charge, who has the power to shape society, and who doesn't. For Hegel, it was the philosophers, because they are in control of the idea. For Marx, damn, piss on that. It's the employers, the bourgeois classes of society are the employers, because they get to control the worker, and economic conditions are really what shapes man. So they have the means of production, not of just material goods and services, but of humankind itself, through the control of economic development, through the control of economic conditioning, through the control of what he called material determinism on the person. So now the jailer is no longer this spiritual demiurge Yahweh. It's now this, instead, social class that has access to the power of society, which it naturally, just like Yahweh, when the serpent tricks Eve into taking the fruit and Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the Garden of Eden, this is Genesis chapter 3, when that happens, Yahweh figures it out, not so happy, kicks him out of the garden, puts him in the world of suffering, blah, blah, blah. This gets interpreted as the snake was telling the truth and Yahweh doesn't want you to know it. So Yahweh is working to preserve his power and privilege in the Garden of Eden and over the world. So he has to oppress. First, he just, first he just marginalizes. You can be in the garden. You just can't really do anything. You can't know who you really are. First, he marginalizes. And then when they begin to awaken, he oppresses. And so that's the demiurge in old school, pre-modern Gnosticism, and in the modern era, it's the people who have control of the means of production of society, the people who are the noble and the elite and get to write the social contract, or the French bourgeoisie who gets to write literally kind of the economic and, and, and marketing contracts, and they get to arrange the society for their own benefit, or the what Marx called the bourgeoisie, which is the, uh, the capitalist class uh, and managerial class who get to control the worker. They are always going to set the terms of society to their own 
benefit, just like the pre-modern Yahweh. This is the Gnostic belief important of the modern era. So they're going to rig the system to their own benefit. And the people that are, they're oppressing will first not necessarily be oppressed. They're going to be marginalized if possible. You're going to work and I'm going to pay you a wage and you're going to be happy and you're going to think you have a good life and you're going to think it's better than what you had before, blah, blah, blah. And so we're just going to marginalize and exploit you. But if you figure it out, we're going to crack down on you so you can't revolt. And then we're going to oppress you. That's the Gnostic impulse underneath all of this. Okay, so now we've got, you know, up through Marx. You can see how this works. I think it's very clear how it works um, as, as a Gnostic belief system. So what about feminism? So we're going to fast forward to 1949. So we're talking Marx in 1844, 1848. We're going to fast forward. We're going to skip a couple characters along the way. And I'm not going to do all of feminism. Obviously, there were the feminist reformers in the 19th century um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Susan B. Anthony, and so on. You know, there, there were these feminist characters, the so-called first wave feminism, get the women's right to vote in the 19th Amendment in the United States, and so on. And then there's some other stuff. Fast forwarding to Simone de Beauvoir in, in 1949, because I don't want to drag this out, and this isn't about a full history of feminism. This is not my point. I don't care about first wave and second wave and third wave and blah, blah, blah. I don't care about these things for this. So Simone de Beauvoir was the exact same kind of Gnostic. So here we are at feminist Gnosticism. Simone de Beauvoir was looking, she wrote this very famous book. It's kind of her magnum opus, or at least it's considered a magnum opus in 1949 called The Second Sex. And so when we look at the trans and the queer phenomenon that's now cannibalizing feminism and running amok through society, devouring, is no longer the devouring mother, it is devouring its mother and running amok over society, I'm going to remind you that it was Simone de Beauvoir who opened the gate to this path to hell that we're in. This lands at the feet of feminism and its gender criticality pretty much entirely. Now, like I said earlier, like I said in the previous podcast, it's Foucault and then Butler and then the queer theorists who actually took it this direction. Foucault actually fulfills Beauvoir. But Beauvoir opens the gate and then Foucault leads down the path and then Judith Butler and the rest describe the circus inside. And the thesis statement, the core statement, the most famous statement of the second sex. Listen to the title, by the way. The second sex. We'll come back to that. The thesis statement, the famous statement is, one is not, and there are various translations of this, but one is not born but becomes woman. Now, if you've been paying attention with this whole like esoteric analysis I've been doing, that becomes part should hint be a hint to you that we're dealing with esotericism. You are not what you are. You become what you're becoming, right? God is not what God is. I am who I am. God is becoming what God will be when God realizes that God is what he is, right? God is becoming. Being is becoming. That's Hegel's first and central dialectical triad. You have being and nothing and in between them, the synthesis, you have becoming where nothing gives way to being. There must have been an act of becoming in between. And the becoming is perpetual until actualization at the end. 
So Beauvoir in the second sex lays out the thesis, one is not born but becomes a woman. But what she says is you that gives you kind of two choices. If you happen to have been born into a body that's female. See, so what you can do is you can either do that on society's terms, which happen to be patriarchal terms, so you can do that at the service of men, for the pleasure of men, etc., which you will then inscribe upon your own body, make your body feminine, pursue femininity. You will make yourself become a woman on the patriarchy's terms, which is, by the way, the demiurge for her, or you can know that that's a lie. You can know that that is the deception of material reality as conditioned by the demiurge, which is the patriarchy. You can instead, as she argues, come to know yourself as a woman wholly independent of the male-female binary at all. And this is where the title, The Second Sex, comes to be so important. The male-female binary makes it so that you can't... There would be no such words. If humans were asexual... There would be no words for male and female. There would be no understanding of male. There'd be no understanding of female in and of themselves. The thing in itself doesn't have a meaning because we understand ourselves in terms of the other. Male is that which isn't female and female is that which isn't male. And in fact, that means that one of the sexes can be considered primary and in a patriarchal system, it's the male and the other is the other, with a capital O, the other sex. Now, that's, of course, a hermetic concept. It's the dialectical opposite to the, uh, to, it's the antithesis to the thesis, okay? And so when that other is subordinated rather than equal, it's not the other sex, it's the second sex. And, of course, it's the second sex sex or the other sex, because the one that you would call the other is by virtue of being other subordinate. The original is the original, and then there's the other. Not as good. Counterfeit. Copy. So this is her point with the title of the book. So women are the second sex. They are intrinsically understood in terms of the male-female binary, but the male-female binary itself is understood in terms of male preference, male superiority, patriarchy, masculinism, and everything revolves around that. So what she's saying is that women born into a female body, she doesn't deny female bodies. She doesn't deny this at all. She's not throwing biology out. She's saying that everything after that is socially constructed. There's biology, which happens to be an accident of birth, and then everything after that. You didn't choose what body you're born into. You're flung into the body. You're thrown into the body. That's a Gnostic concept. You've been thrown into this world. You didn't ask to be born into it. Your soul didn't ask to be incarcerated in a body. The divine spark inside of you, the piece of you that is a chunk of God, an inseparable, technically, chunk of God that doesn't realize it, did not ask to be imprisoned in a body that's imprisoned in a world. That's Gnosticism. But if you know that you are truly just another aspect of God trapped in a body, if you have that gnosis, that saving gnosis, then you can save yourself. That's Gnosticism. But here, 
what happens is you can be, you're born into this female body. You're thrown into this female body. She doesn't deny the body. And then everything else is caused by patriarchal inscription. Everything else is the patriarchal conditioning of society that forces you to become a woman on patriarchal terms. You have to become a person on Yahweh's terms, living in the world that he constructed for you as a prison. You have to become a woman on the patriarchy's terms, living according to what men want you to be as the other or the second sex. Or, she says, you can understand that this is how it works. In other words, you can get feminist gnosis and you can free yourself from it by becoming a woman on your own terms. So you can gain salvific, saving self-knowledge or self-gnosis and escape the prison of the socially constructed world built by the patriarchy that inscribes itself on your mind, tells you, look, you're a woman, so you have to be womanly according to these standards, which you then inscribe on your body by dressing and acting feminine, by not deciding to lift weights and get big muscles or whatever the different things are, eating less, blah, 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 acting girlish, dressing girlish, presenting girlish, whatever the things are that you're supposed to do to inscribe long hair, whatever, pretty, blah, 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 to inscribe that femininity on your own body. So you can gain the knowledge that this is actually imprisoning you. The spirit of society, the patriarchal Weltgeist, is imprisoning you. You can gain that knowledge and save yourself from it by rejecting it and becoming a woman on your own terms. Or you can try to learn to love your bars and your wardens, meaning your husbands and your sons. But if you were a feminist and you actually viewed your husbands and your sons and your brothers and your fathers and the other men in society as prison guards, prison wardens, keeping you in the prison, and other women who have subscribed to this as prison guards, in fact, the nastiest, meanest kind of prison guards keeping you in the prison, wouldn't you be pissed off at them? Wouldn't you act like you hate them? So, But the thing is, they don't hate women who subscribe to the system. They resent them. They don't hate men. They resent them. Because they hate society, which they believe is the product of a patriarchal demiurge, which they believe is fundamentally evil and preventing them from their own salvation that they can now see because they have the gnosis. That's a big difference, but that's their mind, and that explains why they act that way. So you're in a world of appearances if you're a Gnostic. And you find yourself thrown into it and trapped in it. And that's the phenomenal world, going back to Kant. And it's the phenomenal world in which woman is defined. And thus defined for you. Because you don't get to define it for yourself if you accept its terms. And that world is fundamentally deceptive and it's fundamentally controlling. Demiurge or demiurgic power, as Foucault put in virtually everything he wrote, is carceral power. Every time I say this, people are like, you used one word that I don't know to describe another word I don't know. Incarcerate. Carceral. There you go. It means prison. Imprisoning power. It is the power to put you in prison into the world you've been flung into. So it's phenomenal, though. And if we go back to Kant, what that means is it's actually divorced and alienated from the thing in itself. In this case, the thing in itself is woman. That's the thing 
Beauvoir is saying, if we could reach that, and I have a glimpse of it from my gnosis in my mind, if we could reach that, we wouldn't be alienated from ourselves anymore. We would be woman in herself. If we did it in German, Frau in Frau an sich. We would be woman in herself, as opposed to woman according to man. Woman under the othering binary. And if we were woman in herself, we would no longer be alienated woman. Woman alienated from herself by the patriarchal constructs, the social constructions. And thus from our true knowledge of ourselves as woman on woman's terms. So we're alienated and divorced from that because of the social constructions of the patriarchy. They don't hate men. They hate the social constructions. They hate the society that forces them to be women on terms they have decided are down to men in their resentment. Now, trans-gnosticism, if you want to call it that, or queer Gnosticism more generally, actually just says there's another layer of appearances here. So what it means to be a woman, that's a layer of appearances created by the patriarchy. And you can gain gnosis, feminist Gnosticism, feminist gnosis, to understand that, no, 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 the woman can define herself as herself in herself. Frau an sich. Woman in herself, right? And that would, I don't know if my German's right on that, and I frankly just don't care. It's a playoff of ding an sich, and if I didn't do the sich part right, I don't, I literally don't care. Leave it in the comments. Have a good time. Um, but I won't read them because I literally don't care. Um, Trans-Gnosticism or queer-Gnosticism says, look, that's a world of appearances. Yes, feminism. Yes, but guess what? There's another layer of appearances that poor, stupid feminists who think biology is real just can't see. You have another layer of false consciousness being inscribed on the body by the world spirit. And that is that sex and sexuality are intertwined in these gender roles, and in fact, they too are socially constructed phenomena. And feminists, because they have a vested interest in their own power through womanhood, refuse to recognize it. They're just another prison warden. They're like a sub-demiurge that does more demiurgic stuff. Frau Ansich still denies the absolute person in itself. In fact, the absolute person is the person that is divine, that is absent any of the social constructions of gender, sex, sexuality, race, etc. The person in itself is the divine spark within each human realized as the divine spark and thus freed. And thus you understand again, trans people are sacred. That's a sa something they say. That's something they put on a stage in a big production called I, Joan at the Globe Theater, Shakespeare's Globe. And the opening line in a big monologue is trans people are sacred. Why? Because trans people have taken another step toward realizing the person in itself, which is what it means to actually be a person absent those social constructions, an individual, a human, fully humanized person as Marx might have it. They've just taken another step, a step past the last step feminism is willing to take. They stayed on the train where feminists got off and went another station down. Toward what? Toward what they believe is heaven, the full actualization of the person in itself, the divine sparks recollected into one undifferentiated, saved whole. Trans people are sacred. So feminism is a form of Gnosticism 
that has another, think of it like layers, like an onion of, of imprisonment. And trans just sees through the next layer that feminists refuse to see through. That's why feminism can't stop trans. It's the same train. It's the same track. It's going in the same direction. And they think they can make it stop at a station and not go to the next one. And trans people are sacred because they take it to the next station. They are going away from woman in herself toward person in itself, free of all confines of gender, sex, and sexuality, which can then extend into race consciousness through intersectionality and ability status and fat status and all the rest. So you truly become just the soul inside of yourself that is the peace of the world spirit that will, when all of these illusions and deceptions are obliterated through the transformative process of humanization, will actualize as the ideal person in itself. The absolute man, the absolute spirit. Your beliefs about yourself are your soul, but they are part of the soul of society, which conditions your soul. That's Marx's inversion of praxis. And you can wake up to this and do activism, which is praxis, to change that circumstance. Because Frau Ansich, or woman in herself, in Beauvoir's construction becomes the basis for the noumenal woman, the woman in herself, the spiritual capital W woman. And that is what Beauvoir is saying you have to become. Patriarchy prevents you from doing it. We are literally eyeballs deep in freaking Gnosticism here. Patriarchy is the demiurge that imprisons you from keeping to know who you really are. That you are a child of God and actually inseparable from God if we are going back to the pre-modern conception. You are woman on her own terms, absent anything else. So when you see them say things, let's solve a feminist mystery. When you say you see these some of these crazier ones say crazy stuff like, well, real feminism has never been tried because there's never been a society absent the gender binary. What they're saying is the demiurgic power of the binary, which always privileges one sex over the other and virtually always privileges the male, rendering woman the other sex. But the binary itself prevents the possibility of woman being woman in herself. The noumenal woman is therefore inaccessible. We only have access to the phenomenal woman, which is made up of appearances that are deceptive and conditioned by the people with the power to create the appearances. In other words, a demiurge, which is usually the patriarchy. This is, by the way, back to the trans thing. This is the foundation for that concept they throw around sometimes, and we hear sometimes of a gender soul, that the trans phenomenon is fundamentally spiritual, that they are when they are playing around in their genders, their 230 genders and sexualities and romantic orientations, they're playing around in pieces of their personality, but they're really playing a part, playing around in parts of their soul. They're trying to comprehend their soul in greatest specificity, and their soul, their gender soul within, is being conditioned by expectations on gender, sex, sexuality, and so on. That foundation lives in Beauvoir, who says that, in essence, that you have two choices. One is not born, but becomes a woman, and you have two choices. This is the root of critical feminism, by the way. And you have two choices when one is becoming a woman. You can allow the conditioning and try to love your prison and your guards, or you can try to escape the conditioning entirely and break free of the patriarchy, which is the demiurge, completely. 
and actualize woman in herself. Because the gender soul inside of you, that's where that is. The woman in herself is your gender soul as a woman. That's where that comes from. Sorry, feminists, you did this to yourselves. That gender soul is being misled by the world soul, which is patriarchal. We could, it's the Weltgeist, as Hegel had it, but we could, if I got my German right, Weltgeist Aufmannen, the world spirit of men. If I did that right, my German sucks. You know what I mean, though? World spirit of men. It's the patriarchy. And so that patriarchy might mislead you with its demiurgic power to condition you to become the plaything of men, to be woman for man instead of woman in herself. Not even woman necessarily for herself. That's a step on the way to woman in herself. But you first, you're trying, the patriarchy is trying to condition you to be woman for man, not even woman for herself. Okay, and so that socially constructed demiurgic power of an enforced patriarchal society can mislead your gender soul and cause you to inscribe upon your body. That's the language of feminism and queer theory. Inscribe upon your body womanhood, feminism, or femininity, I'm sorry. And when you do that, you've merely accepted your prison. And your goal as a angry feminist is to not do that and to resent and be angry that you are, and to awaken not just to the saving knowledge, the gnosis, the self-knowledge that this is a a lie being inscribed upon you by the demiurgic power society, but in fact that you are a historical agent. You are part of the evolving Weltgeist. The Weltgeist transforms through time. That's Hegel's hypothesis, his historicism, that history is the history of man as it unfolds from beginning to end from alpha to omega. At the omega point is when the absolute realizes and everything is in itself. And there is no distinction any longer because everything's been hermetically transformed or dialectically, as the word goes, transformed. That's what you have to do. You have to position yourself as that willful other to start to cause the conflict under the principle of polarity that will do so, but that saving knowledge is the starting point, but it's not enough. There's a process. There's a process of conflict where you have to start to transform the Weltgeist itself because you are a piece of the Weltgeist. In other words, their word for that is you are a historical agent. History is the history of the Weltgeist, of the world spirit. The world spirit is the collective spirit of man, of all human beings, the demiurgic Classes seize control of it and direct it, and they make sure the marginalization and oppression visited on the others, with a capital O, is that they are not to know that they too are historical agents who can change history. But when you have the Gnosis, you realize that you can. You realize that, in fact, you are a historical agent. But a historical agent means a character in the Weltgeist. You have a soul that matters. It's not submerged. It's not subaltern. It's not marginalized. It's not excluded. It's a soul that can transform history. In fact, is transforming history. So your being becomes being of praxis by virtue of knowing that you are that. In other words, Gnosticism. And so by undertaking an awakened and conscious activism, which is the hermetic transformation under principles of polarity and so on, The divine spark inside of you as 
woman on siege or Frau on siege, a woman in herself, can start to be liberated from, there's that word liberation, right? Feminist liberation. Frau on siege, woman in herself, can be liberated from the broader spirit of patriarchy, Weltgeist auf Mannen, and thus come to know itself as itself. Woman can come to know herself on her own terms, which is the point that Beauvoir laid out. And Beauvoir is very, very, very materially the mother of modern Gnostic feminism. When you kind of use the language like I did, I added the German. Beauvoir spoke French. She wrote in French. She did not write in English. She did not write in German. But when you start to mix the Beauvoir and the Hegelian and the Kantian German together, Beauvoir's ideas and express them in Kant and Hegel's systems in German, you can kind of see it's like one seamless explanation of modern era Gnosticism and feminism. So again, I come back to the beginning. People think that feminists hate men, but that's not right. Feminists believe society is controlled by men. That's Weltgeist auf Mannen. And they hate that society because it prevents woman in herself, which I guess is uh, Frau uh uh, did it wrong on siege Frau on siege. Yeah, I did it right actually. So woman, it per, the, the patriarchy prevents woman and herself from emerging and knowing herself to be herself and thus actualizing woman outside of the binary, which is why they obsess about the binary and overturning the binary. Now it adopted all kinds of deconstructive methods as it moved forward from Beauvoir. She's French, other French people like Foucault, who gave almost all of the tools by actually his, what he did, and you can hear that in the other podcast about queer Gnosticism, is he did the exact same thing with homosexual as Beauvoir did with woman. Exact same thing. These people are not freaking creative. Exact same thing. One is, he didn't say it, but one is not born but becomes a homosexual, which David Halpern explained. The only way you can make sense of that statement, because one is born or not born a homosexual, the only way you can make sense of that statement is if homosexual means what he means by queer, what queer theory adopted. And so one is not born but becomes queer, which means it's full of grooming to make people queer. And technically everybody could become queer because it has nothing to do with what you are. And Halperin says that. He said, in fact, kind of very grossly that it could be, for example, straight couples who are married with without children. That's queer because married couples are supposed to have children. Uh, but he says also it could be straight married couples who do have children. And he says in italics, very naughty children, which is, they always got to be gross like that. So the whole queer thing falls right out of this. It's the exact same thing. All you have to do is say, well, where does gender come from? Something to do with sex. Where does sexuality come from? Something to do with sex. Why do we have sex? It's something to do with sex. As in the other kind, like sexual sex. So those things aren't actually apart from one another. So one is not born but becomes woman. One is not born but becomes queer. Oh, those are two pieces of the same thing. Now you get queer theory. And unfortunately, gender-critical feminism has zero tools to stop that from happening. They just look like conservatives from within. And they get treated like it. They get treated as turfs. They get beat up. They get yelled at and screamed at and hated and marginalized because they are the repressive force and they feel on the left entitled to imply liberating tolerance to free themselves from repressive tolerance. There's your Marcuse. And gender-critical feminism, or so-called TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, the ones who want the train to stop a stop too early, or a stop earlier, really, there are no, there is no last stop on this train. Um, 
those people, unfortunately, are the counter-revolutionary conservative executors of repressive tolerance. And therefore, just like Marcuse said, violence is justified against them. Violence is justified against them. Suppression, censorship, pre-censorship, all of it to create a liberating tolerance that forces them to tolerate girl dick and women plus. And feminism is subsumed by its own creation. Feminism is cannibalized. Feminism is hoisted upon its own petard, as they say. And so, like I said, this understand is now, I hope, clear uh, some things. First, that feminism, at least following from Simone de Beauvoir, is unambiguously Gnostic. It is unambiguously modern Gnostic in the tradition inspired by Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, through Marx. It's very Marxist. For a long time, I finally got rid of it. I had this article about Marxist feminism. That's just I was going to read it as a podcast. It's just very, very clear. But it also becomes very clear why they can't stop trans activism. But so do other issues within feminism. And here's where we really get in trouble. So rape culture is a part of patriarchal culture. It actually is justified that men can have their sexual way with women because women are sexual accessories to men. And so part of becoming feminine is being receptive to male advances and male approaches and thus rape, which any time that they even retroactively don't want to have had sex with somebody for any reason whatsoever, it's constituted as rape. And thus patriarchal culture has an aspect called rape culture. And if you read Kate Mann's insane book, called Down Girl, which is kind of kinky sounding, uh, but it turns out to be not that kinky unless you're a self-hating masochist when you read it, which is supposed to be an articulation of misogyny under this patriarchal order. Um, You can see exactly what I'm talking about. The idea is, in fact, that rape culture emerges from a broad system and mechanism of control that controls women so that they are accessories to men. Misogyny is the enforcer of patriarchy. Patriarchy is the the Gnostic demiurge of this belief structure. And so you can kind of get a sense. Rape culture is just an enforcement mechanism. It's one of the punishments visited upon you for being a woman in a patriarchal society. And that the society, as kind of a perverse social contract, generally agrees to it. Rape culture is actually the Gnostic feminist version of the same thing that you see in critical race theory that's called a racial contract, which insists, this was an invention of Charles Mills, which insists that uh, all white people have a secret, implicit social contract. Nobody ever talks about it. Nobody ever says anything about it. Nobody ever hears about it directly. Nobody ever explains it. Nobody ever explicitly signs up for it. But it's to make sure that you keep people of color and especially black people down in order to keep white people up. And that there's this just social contract. It's just in the water. It's just how society is organized because there's a racial demiurge that did the same thing, same thing, same thing. Well, rape culture turns out to be a facet of the exact same sexual contract. And it's all understood under, under the, the uh, things that proceed from Beauvoirian feminism. I don't know if Beauvoirian is right, but you know who I'm talking about. So there's some other things. The wage gap, same thing. That's an enforcement mechanism of misogyny. Kate Mann goes into this. But basically every major huge, like, what in the hell is wrong with them position in feminism can be understood this way. Women are forced into motherhood. So you understand why they don't want to have babies and they have to become girl bosses. It's very simple. Not only do they have to overcome the enforcement mechanism of the wage gap, 
but the patriarchal society is preventing them from becoming women in themselves entirely, which they know themselves to be, because it enforces the idea that if you get pregnant, you're going to have to have a baby, and you're going to, if you're going to have a baby, you're going to have to raise it, and you're going to have to be a mother, and being a mother is not fair because it takes a lot of time and energy. Fathers aren't expected or needed to put in, and therefore women become trapped by the construction of motherhood. And that's one of the reasons they hate freaking motherhood so much. That's actually literally why they get so resentful about motherhood. That's why they go out and celebrate the fact that women shouldn't have babies and why they go weirdly tearful on TV and talk about how they're glad out there in their 40s that they didn't have any kids. And of course they're happy and they sound really psychologically unwell and that they have these weird psychological uh, issues surrounding it. Um around their childlessness. This is one of the reasons. This is why they push that. Because motherhood is socially enforced upon women as a result of an accident of their biology and then an accident of their behavior. Now, of course, that is reified most in abortion. Now, this is where we get in a lot of trouble, and this is where not only will I piss off the feminists, but I'm also going to piss off the Christians. Because for some reason, it's like political catnip or something. You can't say the A word without them losing their minds and just saying baby murder and completely losing the ability to listen to anything. So let's just make this real clear. And you can be as mad as you want because I'm right. You're just going to have to deal with it. There are not two positions in the abortion debate. There are not two positions. There are three. And one of them is a little bit fuzzy in terms of what it contains. Of course, they all have fuzzy edges, except probably not the feminist Gnostic one. There is the broadly liberal one, and then there is the feminist Gnostic one, and then there is the socially conservative one. Those are three distinct positions. They can easily be articulated. So when you hear pro-life, pro-choice, that's two. Listen, McFly, that's not three. That's two. Two minus one. In other words, you're fucking missing one. You got it, McFly? Hello, McFly. Three, not two. Three, not two. Pro-life, that's one. Pro-choice, that's two. There's another one. And you're lumping all of it into pro-choice. And if you don't listen, you're never going to be able to do anything with this. The overwhelming proportion of society is probably generically, liberally, as a matter of fact, pro-choice. There are some people who are outright, hardcore pro-life. Okay? But then there's number three. Number three is the feminist Gnostic position, which is pro-liberation from birth. They've been born into a body that they didn't ask to be born into. That body can make babies. Sometimes babies are made without planning to make a baby. That imprisons them in the idea of motherhood because there's a strong social enforcement that you probably shouldn't kill your fetus. And in the pro-life camp, it's absolute. It's baby murder. You're going to hell, the whole thing. And so now you're shackled, again, not by your biology, but by the expectations of a society to marry the guy, carry the fetus to term, have a baby, become a mother. Notice the word become. Become a mother, shackle yourself to the life of a mother for the next 20 plus forever, actually, years, the rest of your life, as opposed to living out your girl boss life that you intended to live out, the picture of your life in your mind that you had that changed completely in the moment that you had 
obviously an unplanned pregnancy. You've been flung into a pregnancy because of the facts of your body that you were flung into at birth by not asking for it. You were never asked if you wanted to be flung into a body, your secret soul inside of yourself be flung into a body that could make a baby by accident and thus have to rewrite the entire script of your life. You're imprisoned by that, but it's actually not because we have abortion. Abortion is a technique, a, pre- a medical pre- technique, literally a medical technique. You can get into the hair splitting about whether do no harm, does it count as medical, blah, blah, blah. Is it murder or medical? It's a procedure that's done ideally by doctors in a medical setting with medical intention. It is a medical procedure. So there's this thing. So why can't you get one? Well, because a bunch of people say you can't. That's why. We have the technology. We know how to do it. So you are imprisoned into the f- being forced to give birth, and not just give birth, but become a mother. Change your entire life. It's no longer about you. It's now about this other creature that you have given birth to. A parasite in your body, as it were. You have been forced not by the facts of your biology. That's yesteryear. Everything's historically contingent. 200 years ago, it was what it was. You would have to do like Rousseau and just get rid of your babies another way. Presently, you can get pregnant against your intentions and society is going to tell you that the right thing to do is to change who you are fundamentally and stop being the woman you think you are, a woman in herself, and become a woman for this child. In other words, a mother. So you have to transform your identity because society tells you you have to, because society tells you it's immoral to get this procedure when this procedure exists, when this procedure is accessible, when this procedure is reasonably safe within the boundaries of medicine. And you and the Christians are listening and the social conservatives are shedding their pants. It's not safe for the fetus. Shut up. We're not talking about that because the narcissist involved isn't thinking about that. And you can say, well, that makes them evil. doesn't matter. They're not necessarily evils. Well, they, I think they are, but not because of this. Because they're Gnostics. Because they're Gnostics. It's the Gnosticism. If you don't understand that there is a Gnostic position, I don't even have to talk about the other two, but that the, the hard left, this abortion up to the minute of birth or maybe after birth abortions or whatever some of these people have been talking about infanticide what they're saying is that society is shackling them to transform their identity from the woman in herself she is pursuing as a feminist gnostic spiritualist quest and abandon it to become woman for baby in other words or woman for offspring. In other words, mother. That is what they're rebelling against. That is the prison that they have been thrown into against their wishes, against their will, and they have the certain knowledge of self that that takes them off of their track. And I reiterate one more time before I step away from their concept of abortion, I reiterate one more time, it has nothing to do with biology. It has nothing to do with the fact, the biological fact of their sex that they were born into. It has everything to do with society saying they have to be a certain way because it goes back to Simone de Beauvoir. 
One is not born, but becomes a woman. And what she's talking about is woman in herself. Frau on Siech. She's talking about woman on her own terms. And that baby and societal expectations about what you're going to do with it just changed the terms. They're not yours anymore. They're demiurgically imposed and inscribed upon you. You have to accept them or you're a bad person, blah, blah, blah. But if you could change people's consciousness to reject that, you can stay on the path. You get to choose. You can become a mother if you wish. Maybe that's part of becoming a woman in herself for you. Or you don't want to, and you can become a woman in yourself as your girl boss or whatever else. That is the third position. It is Gnostic, cultic, spiritualist belief that a woman should have the absolute right to determine herself on her own terms and nobody else has a say. That is not the same thing as the broadly liberal one, which does not agree with the pro-life stance that, at least for some usually very limited amount of time, you can push the do-over button because it's a complicated situation. I'm not getting into that. Derails from the conversation. But if you want to understand why the far left is the way that it is, why the feminist left is the way it is about the issue of abortion, you have to understand that it's a Gnostic position and that you saying that there's any, even the slightest shred of social pressure that suggests that she should carry that baby and can't change her mind at any instant that you are now imposing upon her spiritual quest to become woman in herself as feminist Gnosticism holds out. So this is a cult religious view, which is not exactly going to be amenable to reason. How you deal with it, whatever. What I want to point out is that if you don't understand that there are these three distinct positions, one of which on the right typically is very morally held, one of which is complicated and fuzzy and asking questions in the middle, but is not psychotic, and one of which is absolutely committed to a girl boss, in other words, Frau Ansich, woman in herself view of what it means to become a woman, Gnostic feminism, then you don't understand what's going on, and you're having a fruitless debate that goes in circles and turns out to be a great way to throw a lot of chum in the water for um, political campaigning and money raising and you know motivating people to turn out to the polls one way or the other and becomes a very delicate thing. But you can't cut through the issue and you can't make any progress in the debate. You can't even have the debate because you don't know what you're debating. You don't know what what's happening. So there is a there are there is a secular view in the middle with two. Well, it's not in the middle. It's not like an average of the two. It's a completely fundamentally different view of the of the issue with two religious perspectives at war with the people in the middle, which is about 70% of the population, like, holy shit, shut up. That's the overwhelming view of abortion of most people in the country is, oh my God, shut up, with two religious groups on the edges fighting it out. The problem being that nobody recognizes one of the religious groups as actually a religious group, in fact, a cult religion, which is, in fact, feminist Gnosticism. So that's the part that's really going to get us in trouble. So anything you want, you pick your favorite feminist issue, you should try to think. All you have to do is say, okay, how is this 
a feature, how is their argument, whatever they say, they're going to say things, whatever they say, how is this an argument that has something to do with society enforcing its will upon women who cannot therefore become woman in herself outside of any expectations on what it means to be a woman at all, outside of any expectations, especially tied back to a binary, or if it has to do with sex like abortion does, well, now you're the woman who has to carry the man's baby. You have to carry a man's baby. Therefore, that's patriarchal imposition upon you to get it. If you ask yourself that question, this thing the feminists say doesn't make any sense to me. Why are they so mad at men all the time? Well, they're not mad at men. They're mad at society. Why are they mad at society? Because society is preventing them from becoming woman in themselves or in herself. How is it preventing? If you ask that question, how is what they're saying reflective of the fact that they feel like society is preventing them from becoming woman in herself, the way Simone de Beauvoir meant it, to overthrow the concept of the second sex, the other sex, the subjected or subordinated sex. It's not about equality, right? It's about absolute liberation from the expectations of society. It's an entitlement, which always follows from Gnosis, because when you have Gnostic belief or Gnostic knowledge, gnosis, you believe you've seen the truth in the mind of God, which is incontrovertible. It's not faith. It's beyond faith. It's, it's, it's absolute knowledge. So if you ask that question, you can understand what they're doing much better. You can understand how it works very clearly. They are the girl boss is the woman seeking Frau on Sitch, woman in herself. Everything that's in her way, gender pay gap or whatever, is an enforcement mechanism by society trying to prevent her from becoming girl boss. And girl boss is Frau Ansich. Woman in herself. So feminism is, in this, in this regard, is feminist Gnosticism. Feminist Gnosticism works exactly like all other Gnosticism. Patriarchy is the demiurge. Men and women that buy into the system, so trad women or whatever, are actually the enforcers of that social system, which has to be understood as the spiritual system because it's modern and postmodern. And that's the thing that has to be rebelled against at the kind of pinnacle of activity in the same way that Satan rebelled against heaven, because that's what the Gnostic belief system is about. At the less extreme, it's about having self-knowledge, which we would literally call girl boss or girl power, that says that the future is female which turns out that that got wrecked. The future isn't women. The future is women plus because the logic of Gnosticism said, Psst, there is another layer of, of, of conditioning, another layer of material deception uh, that's preventing you from going all the way to the pure spiritual realm that we're all pursuing with the actualized person in itself at the end, which is indistinguishable from every other person and indistinguishable from God. So, Feminist Gnosticism. It's going to get us in trouble to have talked about this. But so much of what you see happening, how, where are the feminists fighting the trans? Why can't the feminists fight the trans? Why doesn't it work? Blah, blah, blah. All these questions people ask, because the feminists are fighting the trans, by the way. The turf thing. Why does it work this way? It's all comprehensible. The trans phenomenon against the feminists, same like I said earlier. It is straight up the same Gnostic rebellion as the feminists against society. It's now the... They see the feminists trying to preserve biology as their primary enforcer, so they have to destroy them. You see? So this is this is feminist Gnosticism. 
all of this crazy leftist activism is Gnostic. It's also hermetic, which is a form of Gnosticism. I know. Go listen to the other podcasts. I'm not getting that wrong. Stupid people who are going to try to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. We covered that. Beginning of the Gnosticism in the Modern West podcast. So all of this leftism is Gnostic. It's all Gnostic. It's all the belief that society is imprisoning us. And the society is imprisoning us because they have put the spiritual realm in the social. Okay? That's really what the point of the phenomenology of spirit by Hegel is. That follows off of Rousseau and Kant into Hegel. It turns very Gnostic, very nasty, very critical with Marx. And everything since has been informed by that on the left. Marx, to the left, Marx is yesterday, Hegel is the day before, and Rousseau is the day before that. And that's just how it is. You have to understand it this way to understand it at all. When you understand that it is a gigantic cult religion of resentment and anger and envy and ultimately the spiritual quest of freeing yourself from any social spiritual constraint um, so you can return to spiritual, which in this case is social Garden of Eden, where everything's perfect and we call it utopia, and you'll be liberated from the confine, confines of, of, of unliberated life, you can understand what they're actually about, what they're actually doing. I think it's extremely important to understand it this way. I don't think it's comprehensible without understanding it this way. I don't think it's res- you can be respond to it without understanding it this way. And I don't think you can inoculate young people from falling for the seductions, the whispering of the serpent, literally, that pulls them into this belief about these things. We have to understand this for what it is. And I'm rambling because I had another point and I forgot it, so we'll add it in the comments later. Just kidding, I probably won't. Feminist Gnosticism, just another form of Gnosticism, Gnosticism in the modern era. I guess the big, big takeaway to to roll back around to that is that sociology as it developed, the social sciences as they developed, are in fact the theology of modern and postmodern Gnosticism. That's why there's so much emphasis on on these things. That's why the universities are so poisoned. That's why all this feminism that emanated out of the English literature departments from mostly lesbian feminists who were Gnostically pissed off and had read De Beauvoir and really resonated with that uh, become so relevant to this story. This is how the universities became the new seminaries is because the spiritual realm in the modern era moved into the social realm. And if you understand that we're dealing with sociological Gnosticism, generally speaking, you can understand so much of what's happened, so much of what's happening and why our schools and universities have become kind of religious epicenters, indoctrination and induction centers. But what they're doing is this new religion that's taking over everything is a cult. It's a destructive cult. It ends in destruction. It ends in, in, in dismay. It does not liberate anybody. It will not liberate women. Um, the, the, it's all a gigantic socially constructed lie and uh, that's why it's the whisper of the serpent you know Genesis has a few things to say that are worth reading so I'll leave you here <laughs>